and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where we talk about Ari's experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the related health and medical issues he's had over the course of his life. And last episode, we talked about Ari's childhood growing up with Alport syndrome, his life from birth to age 18, actually to age about 19, and this week, we're going to talk a little bit about dialysis, just a short overview, because it played a smaller role here in his life, but we're going to get more into that in some future episodes. And then we're going to tell the story of Ari's first transplant. So Ari, just to begin, to catch up on where we were last time, you were sleeping about 20 hours a day, right. you were short of breath, you were vomiting once or twice or multiple times in a day, Yeah, you were, have, you were in the early stages of congestive heart failure. <laughs> So you go to see this doctor and he tells you you're going to need a kidney transplant, but you're also going to need dialysis and you're going to require a surgery to have dialysis. So first explain what dialysis is and then we'll talk about the surgery you had. Okay. Dialysis is an artificial method developed to take the place of what your kidney normally does, the way that your kidneys clean your blood. So there's a large machine. It's sort of the size of a small, very narrow refrigerator is about four feet tall, let's say, and like two, three feet wide and two, three feet deep. And it has a removable, what they call an artificial kidney that is then connected by long tubes to very large needles that they put in some sort of access to your body so they can remove your blood, clean it, and put your blood back. So there's sort of two big tubes coming from your body, one that is taking blood, running it through this machine with the artificial kidney, and then another tube that sends it back to you. Right. And in fact, they call that the venous and the arterial line. Okay, great. Yeah. They take blood out, and they clean it, and then they put it back in. And in order for that to work... And uh, I will just say, we'll probably put some pictures in the show notes, but it's kind of a crazy Rube Goldberg-looking device. We said like a refrigerator, but you've got a picture. There's this tube full of blood that kind of goes around in a circle over this one thing that kind of turns it in a circle, and then it goes through yeah. the artificial kidney, which is like this tube thing with a bunch of filter material, almost like a coffee filter, but not quite. Yeah, it yeah. has it has a bit of a crazy mad science-y appearance to it. I will just, to, to give people a little bit of a flavor. Yeah, and it makes sort of a churning sound, too. So in order for the the process to work efficiently, what they want to do is create um, a large access point kind of in the human body. So as much blood as possible can be used as fast as possible so that you're not on dialysis the entire time. Uh, so for a younger person like me, like I was... 18, on the verge of 19, when they did this surgery, they do what's called a fistula. And I've come later to understand that fistula is a term that's used in various areas of medicine. In this particular case, what they're talking about is they actually sort of sewed an artery and a vein together. So it created this like very large blood vessel where blood is kind of weirdly moving in a circle and it's big. In my left forearm, that's because I'm right-handed, so they wanted to put it in a place where, you know, I wasn't using it. And uh, they they did this surgery, and it was an inpatient surgery, um, but it was like a day. Maybe it was actually outpatient. I don't remember. Okay, um, and I'm going to interrupt with the question here, because you yeah. say they do your left hand instead of your right hand, and I know you're a percussionist. You use your arms and hands in your music and all your performance the all the time. And so 
Was there any concern about like changing the way your the blood flow in your arm was going to work? <laughs> a lot. I was extremely concerned, and they kind of waved it off. Um, oh, man. I talked to several doctors about it, and they were kind of like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't really affect the blood flow. You've got plenty of blood vessels going to your hand. It's a redundant system over and over. No big deal. Did that turn out to be true? Mostly. Okay. For a number of years, my left hand got way colder, way easier than my right hand did because they had sort of cut off the blood flow or the efficiency of the blood flow to parts of my hand in an effort to, you know, have it all be in a different place of my forearm. And I will say too, people, if you're wearing a short sleeve shirt, they will be able to see this fistula. There's sort of lumps a little bit on your arm. If someone touches your arm or even your hand, they will feel like a thrumming pulse in your hand. It's a little bit freaky. You can feel sort of this power of all this blood in this kind of super vein in your hand just from the touch. Yeah, and that has, there's two names for that. One is the thrill and the other is the bruy, which is a French word, so it's fancy. That was less evident at the time because they really installed it and it was supposed to be a just in case, just, just hold on, maybe measure. And I was still sort of in denial, like, well, we won't need to do that. And I guess we're going to do this transplant thing, but it's going to be so easy. And to a certain extent, it actually was so easy. But And hang on, before we get into the, the, the your first experience with dialysis, they installed it. And I've said it's very noticeable. And I know you have some kind of amusing stories about freaking out some of your students with your fistula. Yeah, they're always freaked out by it. Because uh, now it looks much different that it's been used so much. There's a lot of scar tissue and it's very bumpy. And when yeah, when I wear short sleeves, I've had kids kind of look at it and it's always like I will say, okay, and so then here is some important music thing that you need to know, or this is a classroom policy because it's the beginning of the year, or I'll introduce something. Are there any questions? Uh, this is actually the nice version of this experience. Are there any questions? And a hand will shoot up, or you know, several hands will shoot up, and the question will be, what's wrong with your arm? The not nice version is obviously I'll be in the middle of something and somebody will just blurt that out, especially with younger kids. Um, and even though I say it's like not the nice version, it's, it's fine. Um, and then I'm able to explain and usually I say, let's finish doing this and then we'll talk about it, of course. But I have had kids ask me to put it away, like cover it up because it's so gross they can't deal with it. I don't think it's that gross, but. I've also lived with it for a really long time. It does look funny. One of the common questions I get asked by kids or adults sometimes is something along the lines of, well, can't they get rid of it? Because I'll tell them now that I have a transplant, I don't need it anymore, uh, which is true. I, I could maybe need it in the future if I needed to go on dialysis again. I hope I don't. But you can't change it. You know, it's it's big and, and swollen for the reasons it is, and it's just going to look like that, and I've... I just get to deal with it. But kids sometimes say, you know, is it going to go away? The the really gross and totally not with it um, version of that, too, is like, ooh, can you pop it? Which <laughs> is, you know, terrifying just to hear because it's not a pimple or something else that you might pop. It's a blood vessel. Uh, but, but kids are kids. And there was a time I was working at a camp, a uh, music camp. Over the summer, and I was teaching, oh gosh, like pre-K through fifth graders. And I had this little second grader who I will kindly call precocious. And 
the kids were asking about it. We were having sort of that day and that time where we, we had done, I had done the teaching we were going to do. And then I said, okay, now I'll tell you this thing about myself and I'll show you my arm and you can touch it and feel it, feel it vibrate and all of that stuff. And they were very into it and, you know, you gross and all of that stuff. And it was, it was fine. And then that question came up. And it had already been mentioned, like, oh, your arm is gross and it's ugly or something. And so I jokingly said, no, I can't get rid of it. I'll always be ugly forever. <laughs> and, you know, because that's the kind of joke I make about myself sometimes when I'm with students. But honestly, I'm a lot more used to, and especially at the time, was a lot more used to working with older students who kind of understand the context for a, a joke like that. And this was, like I said, a first or second grader. And so... As they were leaving the class or something, I think this little girl came up and she said, oh, can I touch it again? And I said, sure, why not? And so she touched it and then she looked me straight in the eye and said, you'll always be ugly forever. Oh, no. Oh, no. I know exactly. And so I I laughed and I said, thank you. Yeah, that that happens. <laughs> so now to get back to they do the surgery, you've got your fistula. Sure. You have sort of not the typical experience with dialysis because it's going to be very short term yeah. just before your transplant. So talk a little bit about the first couple times you had dialysis. Okay. Uh, like I said, the doctor, my family, I had all kind of thought, let's put the fistula in. We probably won't need to use it, but just in case. And then at the very beginning of July, so again, my transplant, my first transplant occurs on July 9th of 96. So at the very beginning of July, I've gotten very, very sick. My kidney function at that point is, I think, below 10%. Um, they always give it to you in percent, like you're supposed to know what that means. And it sort of means something to me now, but really, like, you don't even notice symptoms usually until you're below 50 or even 30% function. Okay. But, but by the time you're below 20 or 15, it's real noticeable. So I was, you know, extremely sick and I was getting prepared to actually have the transplant. We had a date and everything. And at that point they said, it might be a good idea or not. It might, we would like you to have a little bit of dialysis before the transplant, just to kind of get your body a little bit more prepared, not really to deal with the surgery, but like, so that the new kidney didn't have an overwhelming amount of work to do as soon as it was installed. Right. You don't want a big pile in your inbox on your first day on the job. Exactly. It's just terrible. You want to give him like, a, here's the here's the break room. If you have any questions, this is the person you ask. Here's your 401k. <laughs> you don't want to have to also be like, and by the way, it's your job to fix all this right now. So <laughs> they decided to do dialysis. Um, I should briefly mention and this will come up more, I suppose, that my memory of this time especially is extremely poor just due to all the toxins that were in my body at the time. And then also I was in pain a lot. And those two things seriously inhibit short and long-term memory. So, you know, forgive me when I get something wrong or I don't remember. Um, so this is very, very, uh, I was going to say hazy and then foggy. So phasey. It's very, very phasey. Uh, I was... I think they just basically checked me into the hospital. It's my That's my recollection. I, I could be totally wrong, which is not typical of dialysis, unless you're very, very sick, which I was. So they checked me to the hospital. This would have been, I believe, at OHSU, and they did dialysis, I think, for about, I think, five times. And how long is a dialysis session? It really depends on what your dialysis prescription is. 
at the time, it was a an odd scenario because it was temporary, but it was also my first time. When they first start you on dialysis, they don't usually do the full prescription. And a full prescription is anywhere between three and five hours a session. Some people who are much, much bigger than I am and so have a larger volume of blood are more likely to have a longer session, five or sometimes it's been rare, but six hours, I think. And usually your session is like a shorter session would be like two to three hours. So I think... And that's just hours on the machine. There's still, you yeah. got to get in, they've got to prep you, then they take you off the machine and unprep you. So you got to add, I would say an hour to an hour and a half to whatever the prescription is to get an idea of how much time is spent doing dialysis. Doing dialysis, exactly. I mean, I had all the time in the world because I was in the hospital and it was summer and I was sick anyway. But yeah, it was a lot. And so... They started me, and I remember very little. I remember there's this very nice woman who I thought was a doctor, but in retrospect probably wasn't, but maybe starting me on dialysis. And then I sat there, and I, I just slept. Um, typically, there would be a TV, and there probably was a TV in the room, but dialysis tends to make you very tired because it's doing the work of an organ that usually would be spread out over 24 hours in three or four. Um, so it was five sessions only. And here's the thing that I'll break in and explain is that, yeah. you know, if your kidneys aren't filtering toxins and, and sending urine to your bladder, you're not peeing very much. And so you have a lot of water weight. And so one of the things that was interesting to me is that kid, um, doing kidney dialysis, you lose weight in a matter of hours. Yeah. Like some sometimes several pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, weirdly, at that time, I was still peeing. It was a thing that doctors were surprised about because my oh. kidney function was so low. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that my urine output was low, but they they were like, oh, and you're not peeing anymore. And I was like, no, I totally am. Why is that a thing? Why do people keep asking me about that? Uh, it wasn't a lot, but I was. A lot of the standard dialysis, fluid management, and diet stuff hadn't even come up yet because I was headed straight for transplant anyway. Okay. And so now we're going to move into talking about the transplant. Yeah. And so I think, first of all, let's give sort of a general idea. I think what most people know when they think about transplants is somebody goes on the transplant list. Right. So why don't we explain a little bit how, you know, about UNOS and about how the list is a little bit more complicated than just a straight up list. Okay. Uh, I will do my best to remember because also I think it has changed since then. And my status or the kind of status has changed since then. Uh, we usually think, and it's portrayed in the media typically, as literally a list. So-and-so is number one on the list. This person is number 37 on the list, which is not at all how it works. Uh, it's actually pools. And I cannot say without actually doing some more research how it works now, at the time it was all localized pools. So maybe there was one for all of Oregon. Maybe there was just one for, like, the Portland metropolitan area. But then it's also broken down, not just by geography, but blood type. Right. And then there are other kind of, it's not just time on the list that matters, but also how old you are or what your particular health situation is. Or if you're a hard person to match, that might mean that you move up in position. So it's it's a lot more of a complicated picture. Right. Um, like I said, it's sort of more like pools. Uh, 
at the time, and you know, we I got to go to classes for this, like I said, when they put me on the list, that you get points for different things. So I think it's like you get one point for every year served, you get served. But that's kind of how they say it, I think. I think I remember that. So you get a, you get points for time on the list. You get points for various factors. So I was very young. Let's say it was under 25. I don't, I don't know, but I was under a certain age. And so I got, I think two bonus points for that. Um, my blood type is fairly rare. It's B positive. So it's one of the rarest blood types. So I got an extra point, I think, for that. And then. Yeah, there were extra other points that I got. This turned out to be a, a moot point, haha, um, different kind of point, because I, my family was getting tested for, to be donors, but that was just for me personally at the time. The other thing, this is why I call it a pool, is that based on my blood type, and then like you mentioned, other genetic factors, at that time there were like six markers that they checked for. Now, because they can go much, much, much deeper, there are many, many more points of connection. It's like eHarmony for kidneys, basically. <laughs> um, they, there were many, there are many, many other factors and deeper, uh, more granular ways of looking at it. But at the time, it was like about six things that they compared. So I was only in competition so to speak, with other people who had B-positive blood type and with other people in that same geographical area. So there was, or maybe now it is, uh, more of a national thing too. Like if the perfect kidney had come up with me, come up for me in Chicago, it matched all six factors and some of the other intangibles that they mentioned. They could have sent a kidney to me from Chicago. And you'll sometimes see that in movies or TV where they get the big cooler and they take it on a plane. And right. that's, that's the situation that they're dramatizing. Yeah. And that, that is kind of how it works, um, from my understanding. But it is rare that, or at the time anyway, it was rare that that was how things worked. There wasn't really a national list. It was very much a local list. And so one strategy that people talked about was that you could go to another place geographically and basically get yourself on the list in some place that was a shorter or smaller list for whatever reason. Um, that was a strategy. But like I said, we were not pursuing the list stuff very much because my family was getting tested. Okay, and that's a perfect transition point. Right. Talk to me about your family getting tested and about what the decision-making process is, who ultimately donated a kidney and why. Okay. So when we started talking somewhat seriously about transplant, and I've been saying uh, in the previous episode, I've been saying in like January, February, they started talking more seriously about transplant. And I believe that's true, but I also kind of remember, and again, my memory is super shaky about this and some of the timeline, that we have to have talked about it seriously enough in more like the fall, like October, November, maybe late fall, because uh, the testing takes quite a long time. So whenever it was that my care doctor said to OHSU, hey, this person already needs to get on the transplant list, my parents pretty immediately said, wait, I, I've, we've heard that you can donate a kidney. And OHSU said, yes, that is a thing. And so I've sometimes referred to, uh, especially my mother's side of the family, as having a talking drum network that as soon as somebody 
there's something big going on with somebody, then that gets activated and everybody knows about it. Uh, and that definitely happened. You know, she got on the phone. This was a little bit before email was like at least commonly used and everybody knew my grandparents on that side, my, my father's, uh, parents as well. My aunts and uncles, uh, everybody knew. And my, again, my memory is that everybody said, I'm Spartacus. I will, <laughs> I will give Arya a kidney. And your family is intensely supportive of each other and, and about, especially to like, to come forward and to be kind of a, a big knitted together unit about yeah. this health stuff. Yeah. It was very, very important to them. Not even factoring in like, well, this is genetic and it's all part of us and all of those things that are kind of woven in there. So a lot of people got some kind of initial testing. I think at that point, we pretty much all knew our blood type and most of us, at least on that side of the family, are type B plus, uh, which has always been a joke in my family as overachievers that that's the only test that we can, we can never get an A on. But, um, so we, we all have B positive blood, except my father, who's a universal donor, donor. But a lot of people were immediately, I was going to say rejected, but they were immediately, um, taken out of, out of contention. Disqualified. Disqualified is probably the word I want to use. Uh, so my mother was pretty immediately disqualified because they found some markers that she might in fact have some kidney disease herself, which was not surprising, but kind of was surprising. And this is also to harken back to the first episode, Alport syndrome is a genetic disorder. Right. But you guys as a family didn't totally know how that worked yet. You'd know that Maureen, your grandmother, Martha's mother, Maureen, had died of kidney failure. Yes. But you didn't really know about how this sort of, this, this bad gene had been traveling down the X chromosome. <laughs> so you, so this is actually the first indication that something might be going on with your mother too. It was absolutely the first indication that something might be going on with her as well. Uh, I think at that point we knew a little bit more about, oh, it's X-linked, but the women don't get anything is what we had heard. And then we started going, well, but maybe. Mm -hmm. And so it was basically the conventional wisdom sort of was, well, let's be a little cautious because maybe it wouldn't be great for somebody with a little bit of low kidney function, at, which might get worse, to give away one of their kidneys. Um, that was how we discovered that my dad was diabetic. I think basically that's how, and so if you're diabetic, diabetes is one of the leading causes of kidney disease. And so that was a bad idea <laughs> for him to give up a kidney. So the two people who I think probably most in the world wanted to donate to me immediately and who are also likely to be a very strong match because I get half of my genetic material from each of them were immediately disqualified from like the first blood test. Um, and how did they react to that? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I know, but I don't, I don't know. I don't exactly remember. Okay. Uh, I, I'll say, I think disappointed. Um, I think they were a little worried because they thought, great, here's a thing I can do for my kid, like super concrete, you know, for years I'd been sick and there was nothing we could do. I had, you know, all those doctors we went to and we tried this and we tried this and it wasn't that, it wasn't that. And then here was a concrete thing. And then oh, we can't do it. And by the way, oh, my dad needs to start watching his diet and taking his blood regularly. And it was it was a tumultuous time yeah. in that way. Um, it was kind of scary. And I, I think, yeah, I think they were, you know, they were nervous for me. And that was probably the most prominent emotion. I don't, I maybe disappointed. I don't know. 
Um, so who else got tested? Uh, my father's parents are, well, they both passed away now, uh, several, several years ago. Uh, but they, uh, they were too old is kind of what the conclusion was. Um, there is again, the conventional wisdom at the time was sort of, we don't want to give you a kidney that is too old. But another thing that was kind of, that was a thing that was changing. And, um, I remember a nurse kind of joking with me that they had used to have a very hard limit that like no kidneys older than 50. And then gradually it was like, well, maybe 55 is okay. And then it was, well, maybe it was 60. And she noticed a strong correlation with age of nephrologist and transplant surgeons as they got older and had been doing this for longer, that suddenly it seemed like... They believed like, old people might be more capable. Maybe it's okay that we take their organs too. Uh, maybe they're perfectly fine where they never were before. So, uh, but my dad's parents were significantly over that, whatever the arbitrary line was at that point. Um, so then my mother has two younger brothers and she has... You know, two parents. <laughs> um, my, my mother's, uh, well, I guess technically stepmother, um, my grandmother has some renal abnormalities. And renal, just for anybody who doesn't know, refers to the kidneys, just as nephrology is, um, kidney medicine, the study of the kidneys, just to nail down our terms a little <laughs> bit for people who aren't as familiar. Yeah, I, I use those pretty freely. So she has some kidney abnormalities. Um, nothing that has, I, I think, caused her any problems, but they were hesitant about that. My grandfather then, my maternal grandfather, he was pretty healthy. He's pretty old, but sort of within that range of, well, we can't say no because we're the same age for the, for the kidney docs. And, um, my two uncles also were fine. I also have a, a younger sister who was interested in donating, but she was under 18, and that was a, a no-go. That is a thing they do not do. Um, right, for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. The way I remember it is it was sort of, it was decided. I don't remember having a lot of input, but I was also incredibly sick and really just happy that anyone would want to give me a kidney, that... It, the best option, given that I might perhaps need another transplant in the future, I thought this was completely ridiculous, but I was wrong, uh, was that perhaps the oldest person who was able to give me a kidney should give me one first, leaving younger people as options for the future down the road. And my grandfather was, uh, I was going to say excited, that is really the wrong word, but it, it was very important to him to be able to help me in this way as other ways. And so he expedited the process. Um, he traveled a couple of times to different hospitals. And I think actually in a couple of cases paid out of pocket for various tests to be done rather than wait for insurance pre-approval. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that he could, ex like I said, expedite the testing. Um, and this is important because there are many, many rounds of testing that have to be done for a potential donor because the idea and the philosophy is that the person who is going to be receiving a kidney is already sick. And the person who is going to potentially donate a kidney is essentially asking themselves, asking for themselves to be made more sick. Right, and we're kind of running up into first do no harm territory. Absolutely. And 
that's a really a thing that doctors take seriously and i think it's really important that they do so they want to make sure yes that this kidney is a good match and so that's some of the first testing but most of the testing is to make sure that this will not you know it's going to impact that person's life but it won't put their life at greater risk right so it's to protect the donor essentially yeah most a great deal of that testing is is for that because of that they don't and because the tests are very expensive it works in rounds like they do a first round of testing, which is usually just blood. Okay, are these factors compatible? Is it bl blood type right? All those sort of basic things. And they wait to get those results back before spending a bunch more money on the next step. I remember there being like eight rounds or something. That's probably a number my brain made up. But it took a number of months to do. And then it takes several months to plan the actual surgery date, which obviously like you want it to be earlier because you don't want me the the potential recipient to wait too long on the list perhaps have to have on be on dialysis have more health problems along the way and before we get into the surgery itself since perhaps we are educating people a bit about okay. transplants and how they work and also and we should talk about this in a later episode fiction and pop culture do portray <laughs> transplants in a certain way that convey yeah <laughs> a certain picture of how dramatic the process is or how scary it is. And I will say, we're making a whole podcast about it. There is drama inherent in transplants and sure. in your ability. But we have a lot of opinions about how fiction portrays transplants and transplantations and the opinions that people walk away with. So just to be responsible citizens <laughs> in our educational capacity, I found a list on the Alport Syndrome Foundation's website about transplants, and it's 10 misconceptions about organ donation and transplantation. Ooh. And so I thought, instead of just reading it out and making it boring, we'd play a fun little game. Ooh, a fun game. So, you know, you said you were a little bit foggy and your memory of this time is bad and your long-term <laughs> memory may oh, have no. been affected. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you the misconception from the website. Yeah. And before I read the dispelling information, let's see if you can give that to me anyway. Okay. So, misconception number one. I've heard some transplant horror stories, so I feel much <laughs> safer on dialysis. This would be coming from a potential organ recipient. Okay. So, I'm saying true or false, or I'm saying this is ridiculous, or... You're responding to that misconception. Oh, okay. Um, that's a little bit silly. There are... Yes, there are transplant horror stories. I don't know which ones they're speaking of specifically, but sometimes the transplant doesn't work. Sometimes there's what's called sleepy kidney, where the kidney doesn't work right away. Um, you have to take a lot of medication. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to talk about later that with transplants that are difficult. But the fact is that dialysis, which we're also going to talk about in more detail later, I think, is, to put it nicely, a pain in the butt. And it's not just a pain in the butt, it has notable and study-backed long-term health problems associated with it. The longer you're on dialysis, there you, know, you stay alive, but quality of life is not great, and um, it, it shortens your life. It's, it's, uh, it's a little hard on your heart, and it does some other stuff. It's... It's not bad news. It's a wonderful technology that keeps people alive while they wait for an organ, but it also, in some ways, just keeps you alive. Okay, I'm going to give you the point for that one. Okay. Because here's what the Alport Syndrome Foundation says. The life expectancy of a transplant recipient generally exceeds that of a patient who remains on dialysis. 
don't take every horror story you read online as a fact. Yeah. Many individuals with transplant issues have other health ailments or complications of which you may be unaware. Yep. Okay. Number two. You're relatively young, so you should receive a kidney off the national waiting list in no time. Nope. <laughs> um, like I said, you do get uh, points for being young. Hooray. Uh, you know, the, the philosophy there, I believe, is you have, you know, a long, potentially full life ahead of you and older people don't. Um, kind of dark, but it, yeah. It, yeah. Right. It is dark. It, it's, you know, it's... We're talking about this sometimes kind of light, sometimes kind of matter of fact, but we are talking about life or death stakes. People think about 22 people a year, no, a day, 22 people a day or so die on the waiting list. Okay, I'm going to give you this uh, bonus star points for that one because <laughs> okay. you've nailed it. So here's what the website says. Waiting times vary per state and depend on numerous factors, including which organs are needed, age, blood type, and the nature of your medical emergency. Right. With over 120,000 individuals on the national waiting list, of which 100,000 require a kidney, many patients wait years before receiving the gift of life. Yeah. It should be noted that during this time, a patient's health may drastically decline, as you've heard Ari talk about. <laughs> According to the United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS, on average, 22 people die a day waiting for a single or multiple organ transplant. Yeah. All right, number three. It should be easy for you to find a kidney donor. I'm sure one of your friends or family members can help. Uh, well, I kind of addressed that, that um, it should be, you would think, but especially at the time. So in 1996, the technology is different. And I'm, I'm, I apologize, I'm kind of going off track from your quiz. Um, now they can remove kidneys for transplant using what are called a laparoscopic procedure, which requires a much smaller incision, much shorter uh, recovery time. Less impact on the donor. because they're Way not, less impact on the donor. They're not kind of making a big incision and digging a kidney out to speak kind of grossly. Right, right. that's what I was going to say. The, at the time, and for many, many years, the transplant donation was, and I mean, still is, even though it's a laparoscope, it's a major surgery. It's an inpatient thing. You have to stay in the hospital for longer than you would if you gave birth. Usually it's a week, or it was a week. Now it's probably three or four days, but that's a long time. You have a three to six month full recovery period. It's a long deal. And the fact is that those are like the actual facts of the situation, but many people are, you know, love you and care about you and want to do this thing for you, but maybe not surgery. Mm -hmm. The average person, I mean, I'm not the average person. I've seen doctors and had procedures and surgeries up the wazoo. Um, most people haven't. And it's scary. Even just like when I tell people, oh, I've had this surgery, people go, oh, my goodness, surgery a little bit. And I've had that surgery or this other surgery or many others many, many times. So the idea that somebody would just be like, oh, sure, I'll just do this thing. It's not like I'll get you a, a fruit basket. Right. You know? <laughs> and I, I want to say, and this is something that we're talking around a little bit, but to be any kind of donor, deceased or living, is heroic. But a living donor is doing a heroic thing. They, yeah. are, they are saving someone's life, and they are taking on a great degree of personal discomfort and hardship to do it. Yes. And that's something. So if you know living donors, please thank them and tell them that they are great people. It's an incredibly kind thing to do. It's an incredibly strong and heroic thing to do. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. The All the people who work in this um, area of medicine refer to it consistently and constantly as a gift. And there is no 
question that that's the right word. It just flat out, it's a gift, you know, not just, oh, do I have to put up with surgery? But you have to take time off from work. You have to do a lot, a lot of stuff. It's a incredibly big ask. And that's why one of the rules is um, you can't, like, buy a kidney. You can't say, if you do this for me, I'll do this. You're not supposed to solicit a donation really in any way. It's against actual rules by national organizations who handle this sort of thing. Okay, and now we're getting pretty far off the path from my quiz question, which yeah. was, it should be easy for you to find a kidney donor. I'm sure one of your friends or family members can help. And we've talked about this. I think that you've gotten yeah. the correct answer. The fact is, not everyone who wants to help you can. There are strict transplant criteria, including blood compatibility, organ tissue typing, serum cross-matching, and antibody tests. The donor's health is verified by numerous tests, including a 24-hour urine capture, which we talked about last episode, EKG, chest x-ray, psychological examination, and more. Many transplant recipients have numerous living donors tested before they find their match. Yeah, and that's absolutely, absolutely my experience. Okay, so I'm just going to move on to misconception number four. Okay. I'd like to be a living donor, but my medical bills will be crazy. No. Um, 100% no. That's a really nice thing about um, insurance and things, that if you are the donor of an organ, you pay zero. You don't have co-pays. You don't have anything. The person who is receiving the organ is, ding, ding, ding. is the person whose insurance pays for that. Fact, the recipient's insurance will cover the organ removal expenses. Yeah, 100%. Number five. Now that you've had a transplant, you're cured of your kidney disease, right? <laughs> Woohoo! Wouldn't that be great? Um, I can't speak for other kinds of kidney disease, except also I can. That's not true. But obviously, my kidney disease is genetic. I will never make collagen four correctly, no matter what, just because I have a kidney. Um, I have, you know, normal-ish kidney function now, but my kidney disease is not obviously cured. It can't be cured that way. Fact. Kidney transplantation is a treatment, not a cure. A transplant only serves to replace the malfunctioning organ and in no way eliminates or cures a native disease. And that leads into the Alport Syndrome Foundation's sixth misconception. But your hearing will return after a transplant, right? <laughs> what? Um, I never get tired of that joke. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I know. it's. My, uh, so, yeah. Let's see here. Uh, no, that wouldn't that be great? Um, right. Fact. This yeah. is not the case. Damage to the ears from Alport syndrome is currently irreversible. Yeah. There's no way to grow that collagen back or fix that. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Number seven. Your new kidney is good for life, right? Oh, man. I, I hope so. You know, technology keeps getting better and better, but no. Fact. While some transplants can last for an extended number of years, they are not permanent. Additionally, immunosuppressant pills, which we'll talk about sometime later... <laughs> designed to help combat organ rejection, can damage the organ they are meant to protect, reducing the life of the transplant. Yes. Okay. So, number eight. I'm too old to sign up to be an organ donor now. Well, kind of already covered that. There might be still a, a ceiling on that, but those ceilings have largely disappeared by now. In, you know... I, I sort of joked about what the nurses talked about, and I'm sure that's maybe some kind of factor. But the other fact is we're getting pretty good at medicine. Science gets really good. And so 
any potential issues with uh, organ health or age or whatever uh, are largely able to be mitigated through other factors, other uh, therapies. Okay, so I'm going to give you a partial credit here. Oh, no. So fact, the medical condition of you and your organs, not your age, is the deciding factor when determining if your organs can be shared. Mm. Um, a 93-year-old man's liver was donated after he passed away from a brain he hemorrhage. His gift of life saved a woman suffering from end-stage liver disease. Wow. An 85-year-old woman became the oldest living British donor when she opted to donate a kidney, claiming, I don't need two kidneys to knit. <laughs> Um, and they also say, um, important to note, you are never too young to donate either, as neonatal donors have saved lives through rare transplant procedures and can advance medical treatments via research on their donated organs. And wow. we're talking about deceased donors here, which is a sad situation. So if you are too young to legally declare yourself an organ donor, we encourage you to make your wishes known to your parents or legal guardians. Hmm. Okay. So misconception nine. I have Alport syndrome, so I cannot be an organ or tissue donor. Well, they threw in that or tissue donor, I think, to make this more explicitly a misconception. Alport syndrome does affect your kidneys, and it does affect your ears and your eyes, and but you got a lot of other organs there and a lot of other tissues there that can help a lot of people that are completely unaffected by Alport syndrome. Fact. Anyone, regardless of age or medical history, can sign up to be a donor. Alport syndrome leads to damage to your kidneys, but your other organs and tissues are unaffected, so you can still be a registered organ and tissue donor. And Ari is. I am. Final misconception. Uh-oh. I'd like to be an organ donor to save a life, but my family and loved ones would be forced to have a closed casket funeral for me. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think so. Y you know, I... <laughs> uh, no. I, they're... I don't know a ton about the funeral business or mortuaries, despite being a big fan of Six Feet Under. Um, no, most tissue and organ removals are done in parts of the body that are covered by clothing. And yeah, I, the other things I'm thinking about is like, well, sometimes they take corneas and stuff, but usually you wouldn't want to have um, your loved one in a casket with their eyes open anyway. So uh, no, that's kind of ridiculous. Fact. Organ donation from a single individual can save up to eight lives, including many more when tissue donation is factored in. Organ donation does not disqualify an individual from an open casket funeral whatsoever. And that's the end of the Alport Syndrome Foundation quiz, which I think you have passed with flying colors. Hooray! Um, that last question, though, about funerals touched on something that I'm going to ask you about, because okay. um, there are some... Jewish religious practices that relate to organ donation. Yeah. You have Jewish heritage, even though you are not religiously Jewish. Your family is religiously Jewish. Right. So could you talk a little bit about Judaism and organ donation? <laughs> okay. I'm going to preface this by saying that the old joke of two Jews, three opinions uh, is fully in play here. <laughs> the Jewish standard for burial is that when someone dies... Um, there's actually quite a lot of rules. Uh, you're supposed to have a funeral within three days of passing away. I'm sure there's a bunch I'm going to skip and forget here, but... Hey, I'll just interrupt with sort of Laura's guide to, like an outsider's guide to Judaism, which is there are always a lot of rules. Yeah, yeah right. There's always a lot of rules. So I'm going to forget a lot of them. Um, the, the important one here, though, is that 
the body is supposed to be buried fully intact, nothing missing. That means, though, is that when you start considering removing parts of the body, the idea is, well, then they could not be buried in a Jewish cemetery, they could not be given a Jewish funeral, uh, certain prayers could not be said, all that kind of thing, which are very important to, um, to the people they're important to. But, uh, so this got actually raised about the time that I was 18, 19, and we were talking about this whole ramp up to transplant that lasted roughly that school year. And um, my family's rabbi uh, thought about it, <laughs> and I think did some research. And he he came back and actually, my recollection is he wrote in the rabbi's note, or whatever it was in the synagogue newsletter, he wrote a, a sort of an essay about why organ donation, first of all, was not prohibited by I would say his reading of Judaism, of conservative American Judaism, and also why not only was it not forbidden, uh, but why it was, in fact, a Jewish imperative. So he said that, sure, we have this rule, but there is a higher rule in effect here because there's always lots of rules and they have hierarchies. And the higher rule was, if you can save a life, you should do that. There's nothing higher and more important than that. And so donating an organ trumps any other thing. You saved a life, and that means you don't have every single little tiny bit of your body to be buried in. We don't care. You saved a life. It's still there. You're good. And um, I think that reassured some of my relatives who weren't really going to be stopped by a rule, but it was nice to know that it was... Um, Still kosher. Still kosher, exactly. I don't know what, say, the National Council of Rabbis, the International Council of Rabbis, or whoever would say, because like I said, so many opinions, but I would argue that, I mean, not just because it benefits me, because it, it does, but I would argue that that's actually a reading of those kind of rules and other kinds of rules, because this is not the only religion or philosophy that has ideas similar to that, that I, I think that that's an important idea to keep in mind. That to save a life is the highest rule, the highest calling. Yeah, why not? Okay, so you've passed the Alport Syndrome Foundation quiz that I gave you. All right, good. And um, your rabbi has no objections, so okay. I think we're going to go right into, <laughs> give me the story of your surgery. Ah, oh, story of the surgery. Okay, well, you mentioned before about sort of the close-knit nature of my family and the supportive aspect of that. My... I was very sick, but my transplant became a, sort of a, I would say, mini family reunion, but I don't know of anybody that wasn't there. Um, my grandfather was going to donate, so my grandfather came. My, one of my uncles and his nuclear family lived in Portland at the time, so he was there. My other uncle and uh, his family came up to see. <laughs> in some way, I think he just didn't want to be left out, but... Um, we were all there and they, everybody wanted to be supportive, not just of me, but of my grandfather and all the stuff we were doing. So, but uh, largely, I, I mean, it was, it was sort of a celebration in a way of, of my grandfather and of me, but I was so sick. And I think that weirdly it was an opportunity for my relatives who were not my parents and my sister to actually see that because they hadn't seen me in a few months or however long. And, I had really, really deteriorated at that point. My kidney function was under 10%, probably under 8% by the time that happened. I was very, very, very ill. 
and noticeably so. And I think I remember one of my uncles mentioning, like, not to me, but I heard about this later, that, well, he's really putting a lot of effort and he maybe thinks that he's, like, handling it and totally passing, but he's really not. He's really, really sick. And I would say, yes, I was putting a lot of effort and I thought I was passing, but I was really not. So we all kind of gathered there. Um, sort of side note, my sister was not there because she was on a... Um, archaeological dig in Israel. Uh, she was very interested in, in paleontology and in archaeology, and she got this great opportunity. And she hesitated, well, but Ari's going to be having this surgery, and um, I don't want to be gone. And I said, don't sit, wait around for me. Go have this amazing opportunity. So she went and did, and it was amazing, and I'm glad she did it. But she was the only one who wasn't there, as, as far as I remember. So we were all there, and um, then I was kind of impatient having the initial dialysis stuff. And then I remember extremely little about the surgery and the recovery, but they did it. Um, you are aware it happened. I am aware it happened. So um, summer in Portland, uh, the doctor who did the surgery was Dr. John Barry, who was like the big wig transplant surgeon at OHSU. At the time, he had been doing transplant surgery since almost the inception of transplant surgery. So we were glad that we were in good hands. Uh, and he, he did the thing. You know, they put me under, they put my grandfather under. Uh, How long a surgery is that? It was a very long surgery. In fact, it was longer than it was supposed to be. I think it was eight hours total, or it was supposed to be eight hours total. It was about four to remove and four to put in. Something like that. I think it actually it takes longer to put in than to take out. But with my grandfather, there it took longer than they expected because he had so much muscle in his back. So it took, I think, an extra hour uh, for that. And you know, those of you who who know your anatomy know that your kidneys are in your back, but they don't put a transplant kidney in your back. They put it in your front because you already have kidneys in your back, and it is way easier to go in through the front. And it doesn't really matter once you're in there how you got in. So um, as long as they can connect it to, like, blood vessels and your bladder, you're good. So, uh, yeah, they did that. I was in the hospital for about a week. One of the things that OHSU and I assume other transplant centers do with a living donor is that they allow the donor and the recipient to share a recovery room because it's been a thing that you did together. Right. It's common, you know, for spouses to donate to spouses mm -hmm. and things like that. So, it's, you, especially at the time, it was only people who are related. It was called a living related donation. Now you can do just a living donor, but that was not, or maybe it was just starting to be a thing, or it was not a thing yet then. I was in the hospital for about a week. I think my grandfather got out a little bit before me. We were both on a lot of pain meds. Uh, the recovery is pretty specific, and OHSU was and still is on the conservative side for a lot of their standards. So for the first, I used to know these down by heart, I think for the first month I was not allowed to lift anything heavier than five pounds, which was a huge disappointment to my cat. Um, and also sort of a problem because he would come sit on my lap and I needed to move him and I couldn't. I could not move his fat little butt off of my lap because he was whatever, 12 pounds or something and I could not move him. So pretty much I had to have people wait on me for quite a while. Uh, and then for three months, 
or for the next two months or something, it was like 15 pounds. And uh, we're going to talk about this, I think, in maybe the next podcast. But that meant that when I went to college, which I did about two, two and a half months after this transplant, which was definitely edging in on what I was supposed to do. A little on the fast side. A little on the fast side. Uh, as a percussionist, you have to move a bunch of big gear. It's not like I play flute and I could carry my little flute around or even trumpet and I could just carry my trumpet around. I had to help move timpani, giant copper drums, or a marimba, or even just crash cymbals are kind of heavy. And I had to move a lot of those sort of things. And so it, it was a bit of an issue. Um, it was workaroundable, but it was noticeable. So I couldn't lift anything. I was supposed to all of a sudden drink a ton of fluid to really get that kidney working and, and make it do its job. And this is kind of a funny reversal because when your kidneys aren't working and you're on dialysis, yeah, you're supposed to limit fluid. You don't want to be taking on a lot because your kidneys aren't filtering it. And so you go from trying to limit that fluid to suddenly hydrate, 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 drink a bunch of water. It's a, it's like flipping a switch after that surgery. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really difficult mindset switch but it was it was a good summer that was <laughs> in 1996 that was uh summer olympics and um i've always liked the olympics as a kid and uh i mean i wasn't exactly a kid anymore but that was the summer that because i was i was on a ton of meds i mean i was you're always going to be on a bunch of meds but you're on the most meds you're ever on in the first three to six months of your transplant. You're on the highest doses. One of the drugs that I was given is called prednisone, which is a broad-spectrum drug that's used for a lot of things. It's a steroid, and uh, it's also an immunosuppressant. It suppresses your immune system. It's part of the cocktail that they give you to make sure that your body does not reject your organ. And we'll talk more about this in the next episode. A ton, yeah. Uh, but... Prednisone has a lot of weird things that it does to your brain. It can make you manic. It can make you um, short-tempered. It, it does a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, I I have lived with you while you've been on yeah. prednisone, and I will say that it sort of it gives you the all the rage of the Hulk while you're still sort of at the strength of a sickly Bruce Banner. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. And I was on I was on more prednisone at that time. And I think at any other point in my life, just quite a bit. And so you were watching the Olympics while you were doping. While I was doping, exactly. I don't think it's banned by the IOC, but I don't know. One of the effects it had is that I, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. And so I got extremely into women's volleyball. Um, not beach volleyball. It wasn't, it wasn't that kind of thing where I'm like, ooh, bikinis or something. It was, I was really fascinated by the tactics of the volleyball court. And the the men's volleyball, I was kind of into it, but I, they just hit the ball really hard and it wasn't exciting. And there was a lot more going on on the women's court. And so I got really, really deeply into knowing all the members of the team and the whole roster. And, well, this one's good at this. And why did you put her in? And it, um, it was a little bit strange. So that was part of the – I'm mentioning the Olympics because there were two things. One was that, that I got really into volleyball as a fan and all the other Olympic things too because I – more than I've ever been into the Olympics and more than I ever have been since uh, as a thing that I enjoy. And then also that was the year that John Williams wrote a new Olympic theme. He had already updated – this is where I, I – I went to music school uh, – 
Leo Arnaud's uh, Bugler's Dream, which is the thing we think of as the Olympic theme music. Bum, 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 bum. There's a timpani thing and then the uh, the trumpet fanfare. That the He had already updated that, and that is what we always hear is his version. It's a kind of combination of his stuff and the original composition from the 20s. And then that was the year he wrote a new Olympic theme called Summon the Heroes. And I was super duper into this music and in a pretty manic state and feeling very creative. But also because I was so manic, I didn't have any like get it done if isness. I didn't have any. That was a really weird word I just used. I did not work on things. I just had ideas. So I that was when I first started saying like, oh, I should write music because I like writing music about this experience I just had and how this means so much. And this is like a new, I don't know, lease on life kind of. I, I felt really, really positive about things in a way that I had not felt in, I don't know, six, eight years even because I'd been sick and getting sicker for so long. And all of a sudden... I felt pretty great. It was a really, really sudden transformation. Yes, I couldn't lift things. Yes, I still hurt sometimes, but my mind was clear for the first time in years. I didn't have headaches. I had energy. Some of it was fake because I was on prednisone, but I had energy, mental, physical, creative, and I started tinkering with around on some stuff um, on the piano. It, nothing ever really came of it, but an idea started there that I think, kind of developed later. And I think that's a pretty good place to end right now. And next episode, we're going to talk about you getting your transplant and you going off to college and that experience. Yeah. So it's time for my last question, which is, Ari, how are you feeling right now? Okay. I, I wanted to say, because this segment was at least partially my idea, and I was thinking recently that it's a little bit ironic that it is. Um, I apologize. I'm not answering your question right away. because I'm, I'm getting used to it. <laughs> for... For years, that was like the first question that many people asked me because right. it, it was my my primary trait that anybody knew about me. Oh, you've got you've got problems. You're sick. Oh goodness! And I just hated it. I wanted you know ask me about all the things I'm doing or what I'm interested in. So I've asked you to ask me this question, and um, I'm doing fine. I feel good. Uh, interestingly, I had a dermatologist appointment today, which. How'd it go? Well, I, I'm supposed to have that as a transplant patient more regularly than the average person because I'm more susceptible to any kind of disease, which includes that really fun one called cancer. Um, relatedly, at least one of the medications I take uh, makes me what's called photosensitive or extra susceptible to light and sunlight. And so, you know, that's an extra risk, but um, this was actually a new dermatologist because the old one doesn't take my insurance anymore, and uh, he was really nice and really friendly and said, I'm good, and I'm clear, and no worries, and that's uh, nice to know for another year or so before I need to see him again. So I'm doing good and clean the bill of health. Great. So if anybody wants to check us out on social media, on Twitter, we are at KidneyCast, and on Facebook, we are facebook.com slash kidneycast. And you can also email us with comments or questions, kidneycast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And maybe sometimes we'll answer questions directly on the podcast. But also, I might just <laughs> incorporate what people want to know into future episodes. Yeah. So until then, uh, thank you so much for joining me, Ari. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. <laughs>